0: to the Kubernetes Center of Excellence podcast, brought to you by Shadowsoft and our presenting sponsor, SUSE. SUSE is the global leader in innovation, reliable, secure, enterprise-grade open source solutions relied upon by more than 60% of the Fortune 500 to power their mission-critical workloads to specialize in business-critical Linux, enterprise container management, and edge solutions collaborate with partners and communities to empower customers to innovate everywhere, from the data center to the cloud to the edge and beyond. SUSE puts open back in open source, giving customers the agility to tackle innovation challenges today and the freedom to evolve strategy and solutions for tomorrow. Welcome everybody. So. This is a Kubernetes Center of Excellence podcast. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Kubernetes. We're going to talk about things in the marketplace, news, solutions, customer stories. It's meant to be your 20-minute ride through town while you're listening to your your favorite technology podcast. So I've got uh, some people here on the podcast with me. I want to get them introduced because they're going to be constant voices for um, the things you'll be hearing here. So... Rob, go ahead and introduce yourself.
1: Uh, Hello, my name is Robert Sergia. I am the head of community evangelism at SUSE. Um, I have a long history. uh, My prior life, my prior career, I was an application developer um, building cloud native applications when that became a thing a few years back. Um, So I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Nick, and thank you to the rest of the team.
0: And Derek. Say hello. Hi, I'm
2: Derek Sutherland. Uh, I'm the Director of Technical Services for Shadowsoft. I oversee our services from a delivery perspective regarding the architecture design of stuff, advanced level troubleshooting, um, even kind of technical account management, making sure things are operating efficiently and, and being managed appropriately from a, de- again, a delivery perspective. Been here for eight years. Uh, prior to that, I was a software developer for many years in the object oriented space. I've worked with Kubernetes for uh, almost seven. Um, I guess seven going on eight now. So uh, yeah, happy to be here. Happy to be discussing what we're going to talk about today. And okay, let's go.
0: Very cool. And then also in the background, we have Mariah Dean. She'll be showing up on the uh, later episodes that we do uh, contributing, but uh, she's keeping us all in line and keeping us organized. So you'll be hearing from her in future episodes. So we always like to start with Um, Something in the news, and this isn't quite a fresh off the press article, but there was an article in InfoWorld about Mercedes-Benz and their 900 Kubernetes clusters. It uh, was well publicized. Um, We talked about it internally, and um, I have some questions, so I want to have a couple of experts in the room give some opinions on maybe the approach and what they're doing. I know Derek's got some strong opinions, so... You know, basically, this was written by uh, Scott Scott Carey at InfoWorld. Make sure I plug him. And, uh, you know, 900, 900 clusters seems like a lot. Was it, was general it 900? Approach I thought it was more than that. 900 and growing. Uh, yes. Okay. So, you know, that's that's kind of seems like a lot, lot, lot to manage. But they have a perspective on this. And you guys have, you know, read through the article. Um, so... Mm-hmm it seems like they're scaling a different way right their scale is like individual clusters for for teams which is not something we see a lot of what are some thoughts around that
2: rob do you mind if i level set for the listeners kind of what this article yeah was? go ahead go ahead so the, the sure. big couple of things that are key takeaways is they're an OpenStack user so they're talking about on-premise workloads their uh, clusters are mainly being used by different developer groups it's one project like one project group so a, an application backend services database whatever per kubernetes cluster right and they're man- they're managing the the life cycle of things inside of it in that kubernetes cluster and they're doing this via cluster api um, i believe if i remember correctly using either minikube or kind i, I don't remember which one exactly it was Um, But that's the premise, right, is like this isn't – they're not going for or talking about their production clusters, although they may be also including production clusters in that number count. The article was definitely focused on these are development workloads and development clusters, and we want everyone to have their own playground to play in, and we have OpenStack as the infrastructure underneath. So I want to make sure that was, like, keenly level set for the listeners.
1: I'm a little concerned, like – I, I've seen companies do, you know, a cluster per BU, I've seen clusters that kind of cross multiple business units, but for each individual dev team, that's a, I think it's a lot of, that's a, that's a lot of extra overhead, um, especially if you're, you know, the team who's, you know, well, well I'm writing the API that sends email, So everyone who's going to send email through our entire system comes through this API. I mean, that's a. That's a bad example, but you're, there's some times where I can see that isolation making sense and there's sometimes I'm like, well, does it really need to make sense? So, you know, like if it's, if you're doing auth and you have your own homegrown auth system, I get, I get it. That's a hundred percent. I'll agree with you. I'm not going to die on this hill, but for every dev team, it just seems it's a little, little, might be a little excessive, in my opinion.
2: So I hear what you're saying. And I thought about that initially too. I feel like though. There's reasons to do certain things, and there's probably good reasons we can talk about in here. And there's probably also a lot of bad things that are – what are the words? Uh, repercussions for, for making these design decisions, right? So for those who aren't familiar with Cluster API, Cluster API essentially is – it's like – imagine you're using Terraform to create clusters, And in doing that, you want to not only set up the infrastructure, so the number of virtual machines you're going to have in a given environment, but you also want to install Kubernetes on top of it. What Cluster API does is it gives you an interface to go, I want to spin up a cluster in X uh, type of environment. It it could be AWS, it could be Azure. In this case, it was OpenStack. And I want to install this type of Kubernetes cluster, which for them, I believe it's either Kind, Minikube, or there's one other variant I'm not thinking of right now. Um, But those are like the options you can choose from. And then after that, you can include a number of things that you want to have pre-provisioned in that cluster. So with that being said, I could see a benefit if like I'm a developer in a small shop and I want to be able to spin up a short-lived cluster. I just want to have a tool that that's just like – like kind of like Spray, but with infrastructure included. Spin up my infrastructure, give me some stuff to work on, and install Kubernetes on top of it. That sounds great on the surface. But to your point, Rob, when you talk about scaling this up in an organization, the first thing I go and think about is uh, – well, a, a number of things I think about is chargeback observability um management from an organization perspective how do you know what's provisioned where um how are you being able to troubleshoot these different things now they did say in the article it's for the developer environments they didn't allude to it being prod or pre-prod but we have to assume they're trying to carry this over into other environments more than likely because they're not going to probably reinvent the wheel all over the place right and with that being said, I think that the biggest thing that we could say is there's way more efficient ways to do this. And also, not only is there more efficient ways to do this, there's ways that are more efficient that have less drawbacks of doing the same thing.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I I think we're when I saw the, the 900 and growing clusters um, from just from a management, the networking came to mind. Like, what are we doing from a networking perspective um, are we leveraging an API gateway? I didn't read that in there, but it could be. Um, they might have, you know, not have talked about that. But it's one of those where, what is it, you know, what is it? Just from you know, knowing where everyone, you know, where all the bodies are buried, right? In any organization, and you know, you talked about observability. Is you know, how do you keep track of all of this? You know, is there somebody out there doing it? I mean, what does that look like from an organizational standpoint? And that that management it just seems, you know, that's it. Just seems to be a, a, a bit excessive. I thought, you know, when I first read about it, nine hundred and growing, and as you alluded to, this could be kind of a precursor of how they're doing production. What does DR look like, right? And you know, what is that? You know, what is that's you know? Here's me. My first thing is you know, you know, the last thing as a developer mindset is caring about DR. but it's a real world thing now that I always, like the first thing that comes to mind is like, how is DR gonna work with that, right? Um, and how do you spin that back up? You know, yeah, sure, it's development, but if it's looking, if the, if their production looks like that, what does that look like?
2: Let, let me ask you a question that, cause to get your perspective kind of, so you've, you're a developer background, right? I'm a developer background. How many developers have you seen use Kubernetes wrong in your career?
1: Mm. Um, a I, would say the, that, I, I don't want to like say the vast majority. I don't want to say the vast majority, but I've seen a lot. I think it depends. So there's a maturity curve, right? And I think it's where they're at in maturity curve. And a lot of times it's like when you're early on in that maturity curve if infrastructure is driving the change into Kubernetes, the developers are developing wrong. If the developers are driving the adoption of Kubernetes, it's usually infrastructure who's wrong, right? So whoever the tip of the spear in my where I've seen before in my previous life, mm. that's generally the fallback is the one who's catch playing catch up. Now, very rarely you'll see two teams going at the same time and working hand in hand, but you have a developer background. When's the last time you agreed with the infrastructure team?
2: I never – I actually don't agree almost. Not with you, but with the infrastructure or the dev team on how they use Kubernetes like 99% of the time initially. Unless they've been doing it for years and they've already lived through some of the burdens and the fires. Like, I (laughs) hear you. People go in, they go excited. They're going in with a – like, if you're a developer group, we're going into Kubernetes. They should be going in with a very thought mentality, but usually it's not organizations of developer groups that are spearing Kubernetes, it's usually like an evangelist in a group. And that guy might use Kubernetes right, or like that, that small silo of guys might use Kubernetes right. But when they start going, we're gonna bring all the developers in, there's a bunch of them that are resistant, they don't understand, they don't wanna learn. And you know as well as I do, Kubernetes is way different than being in a virtualization platform. Um, so the, mm-hmm. the big thing that I think of here is if you, if you read the article top to bottom, and again, this is for the viewers, right? If you read the article from top to bottom, the last thing they start alluding to is managing Kubernetes actually is really easy for us. But what's not easy for us is helping the developers use Kubernetes properly. And I think that's hilarious for them to say that because probably what they mean is provisioning Kubernetes is easy for us. Keeping it up is easy for us, but what's actually challenging for them is not the developers, and not just the developers that are developing code against it. What's probably challenging for them is how do they manage the life cycle of workloads living inside of Kubernetes? They're blaming the developers for that problem, but the the reality is it falls on everybody. So like the first thing I think of when they go, we use Kind and uh, we use Cluster API to spin up clusters. And we're really mature in that regard. So like it's our developers that are, that are not caught up to speed. The first thing I think of is more than likely, if again, if this is a mirror for development into production, that they're probably carrying over any bad habits they create in development into production. And usually you don't find something's a bad habit until it's productionized. So like I mm. can spin up, let's just say uh, a database. Let's just say it's a uh, Postgres in Kubernetes. Just because I spin up Postgres in Kubernetes doesn't mean I've spun it up in a way that it's production ready. Did I use anti-affinity ruling to make the pods of the Postgres database live on different nodes to actually be truly high available? Did I set up persistent storage properly, right? A- am I operating in a mindset where not only am I using anti-affinity ruling, but am I using topology spread constraints to make sure that things are spread across different AZs, right? They're just going, they've got a Kubernetes cluster, so they're fine. They could just build inside of it. But they're not necessarily going to them, what's the best production level practices? And more than likely, what's going to happen is, I'm, I'm guessing, whatever habits they're building in these developer environments, they're going to carry right over into production. And the production is going to say, because it's not the, the moat of Kubernetes, it's internal to what's running in it. It's the developer fault and not our fault. And I feel like it's the beginning of where yeah. the blame game starts, which is what that article's entire sentiment is.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, that's, if it lies within the development team, it's where that enterprise architect's role is. Right. And I think yeah. that's that crossover role from infrastructure into development. You, you know, you, know you, you're a developer, you, you know, this, you work your way up from junior developer, associate lead, all that stuff. You get up there and, um, you hit that solution architect role, all right? And that next step is enterprise where you have to care about the affinity rules, right? You have to care about topology constraints. Those are things that, that the the cluster itself are things that you need to worry about. And you can't just right. throw it over the fence and say, hey, that's, that's infrastructure shop because to them, everything inside that cluster is working just fine. And it's really that top tier development. And that's where you see a lot of it's not the junior developers. I, I never blame them. It's not even the senior developers. It's that enterprise architects having the, the that knowledge gap where they need to understand some of these things and lay it out. But to be fair, should each team have their own cluster and worry about it? Or should there be a center of excellence w- with that enterprise architect groups from each team saying, okay, what's the best practice? And What are you guys doing that's really good? And and how are they learning from that? And I would love to see a follow-up article to to kind of... Understand where that's at. To kind of, you know, that last two three paragraphs that they have. You know, for us managing yeah. Kubernetes is not hard. Well, all right, if it's developers, then how did you address that? I would love to see you know follow ups from that.
2: Well, it, it's funny you still say it's development problems.
0: <laughs> well, it, it's it's a well written article for clicking, right? Yeah. Mercedes Benz nine hundred Kubernetes clusters. That's a lot. That sounds like a lot in our industry, right? And mm-hmm. then we're evaluating the public cloud. So like we're doing it on OpenStack. I immediately went, "Ew, interesting. Yeah. They even um, call it out. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you get into, well, you know, to Rob's point, like, well, you know, platform engineering is now easy. One engineer for 500 clusters, but there's no delineation between development and, and production. Like is, is, is there any, right? They just call it development. So like, Okay, yeah, managing a bunch of uh, development environments probably isn't that hard because it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So, like, what's the big win here? It's just a a very salacious article (laughs) that I think is um, trying to grab people's attention. And we all clicked on it and we all looked at it. But, like, you know, my big question is, like, like, how in the hell are you going to manage it? You know, when this thing gets to 1,500 clusters, you know, I've heard, I've heard because they're local. We hear things locally mm-hmm. in Atlanta that, um, you know, someone has built a management, you know, plane for them to manage these. And I'm like, there's plenty of great products out in the marketplace that do this. Why would you build it in house? It's probably a a bucket of money thing, but, I don't know, Derek's smiling, so. I think he's it's got funny. A
2: I think <laughs> it's funny because, like, this is what I was talking about when I said they. All the issues that they – all the, the good things they were solving for with Cluster API, again, it, it's like it's like trying to solve for a really small problem and then letting it scale out and not really realizing the solution that you invented is creating a, a bigger problem that you're going to have to solve for later. Now they're spending X hundreds of thousands of dollars to maintain what they're doing and then have a management mm-hmm. plan on top of it. You, you know how they could have solved for this way easier? Like this, this is ridiculous, but like – Instead of using Cluster API, Rancher supports OpenStack as a cloud Mm -hmm. provider. You could have installed a Rancher management server inside of an RKE cluster, which then acts as your cluster deployer. Then integrate it with OpenStack, and then every time you want to create a Kubernetes cluster, they could still follow the same model they're doing right now. They could use the Rancher CLI if they want to do it from a CLI perspective or the Rancher management interface with the actual web GUI and go spin me out RKE clusters across OpenStack the way that they want to. It could be templated exactly the way they're doing right now, and it would be pre-integrated into Rancher so they could observe all of them, apply controls to all of them, do backup on etcd for all of them. like. Yep. They wouldn't have to buy anything. And I mean, I don't mean they don't have to buy anything. I mean, they wouldn't have to go and reinvent the wheel is what I'm more or less saying. They don't have to go, we need to buy services to custom build out this thing that now we're gonna have to maintain, right? Like they could have just been like, yeah. let's just go with Sousa and go with Rancher, solve the exact same problem we're doing right now in a slightly different way. And we get all the benefits resolved for that we're trying to handle right now. Like,
0: but this is where, where organizational <laughs> um, decisions get made. like maybe the money to do this wasn't an operational budget right it's capital budget so the capital budget you got to go build you know like i could see that in an organization as large as mercedes um Mm -hmm. rob you got any thoughts yeah. Uh, one of the
1: things they say in the article, I want to try to be, quote, unquote, we build a 100% FOSS, which is a free and open source software platform <clears throat> built and developed by the same DevOps team with no licensing issue and software requests. So if that, well, first of all, I'm going to give props to that because I, I work for an open source company. So I love seeing when you know, any type of company or end or customers use open source software. I, I, I think it's commendable because it's contributing to better software worldwide, right? But if that's what you're committed to doing, why are you building your own management plane? Right? Like, uh, well, There's so many options that, out there.
2: To be clear, what you're saying is what's open source is not the management plane that they're building. What's open source mm-hmm. is what they're doing with cluster API. Right. Correct. That's what they're saying. So to your mm-hmm. point, if they were going to do that, then they should have also open sourced what they're doing from a management plane perspective. Yeah. But there's already solutions in the space. So they would be, again, reinventing Easy. the wheel
0: easy. Don't be telling Mercedes what to do. <laughs> they do make a
1: nice car. I, I, I would lo- I, I will have to admit, they do make a nice. Anytime you say it's a, like, I think that's why I clicked on it. It was like, Oh, what's Mercedes doing? And I, and I got all excited and I was like, Oh, and I actually thought when I clicked on it, I was like, is this going to take me on some dive that there's K3S running on their dashboard, you know, in the car itself. And that's where like, that's what I was kind of going for. Because Anytime you talk about that, I get all excited. I'm like, what are they doing?
2: Really that would have been oh, dope.
1: That's
0: awesome. yeah, 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 for sure. it would have been, been great if they would have took the technology and attached it to whatever they're actually doing at Mercedes mm. right like what is the what is the outcome how does it get to the consumer like that's the really interesting right. stuff um, so'm I'm, I'm waiting for a follow-up on that article I think that'll be interesting so let's uh let's shift for a second who's ready for another live read where I run out sure. of breath it's gonna be great go ahead. This episode is brought to you by Shadowsoft's Kubernetes Center of Excellence. Your Kubernetes team should not be frustrated or confused with Shadowsoft's CE. You can clarify your process, align your team, and grow your skills. More information at kubes.com. All right, shared experiences. This is something we're going to be do, doing most weeks. We talk about uh, war stories in the field. So. I'll tee this one up. Rob, I'm super interested in your your feedback around this. Okay. So there's an uh, organization that we were working with for a little bit, and um, they had Kubernetes clusters everywhere, six or seven of them. And, um, you know, they're building the software, and their software is consumer-facing, uh, right? So, like, their consumers use whatever they build. I'm, you know, not going to identify customer obviously so um, they were having some issues with their application and scaling and um got on the phone with them and i said hey what tools are you using to you know observe your application and you know your infrastructure and they were like what do you mean i was like you know like an apm tool or an infrastructure monitoring tool um we don't know what apm is i was like cool that's great well let me tell you all about it so we did, and um, you know, we we put them in front of a certain product solution, and uh, they're like, "Wow, this is amazing! We can see so many things." And uh, but then they were like, "It's too expensive." And we're like, "Is it? Is it really?" <laughs> when everything's on fire and not working, so I think you know, observability is not a new concept in IT. It's been talked about really for like ten years strong, and it's even older than that. But Rob, you've you know, you've got some experience. You know working in the field what, what would you say to someone who's like not ready to invest in you know that type of observability but they're running in kubernetes
1: pull the plug like honestly <laughs> it's it's pulled just pull the plug like you're uh you know some of the the experiences I had, especially when I was back in consulting, where customers would 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 be at the same mindset, right? It's like, oh, we don't do we don't do open source, so we don't want Prometheus. I'm like, okay, do you want to buy something? No, we, we'll just have our devs run run this through, and I, and you look at them, and you're 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 just seeing that that constant churn. And I I would come back, and I said, well what do you pay them for? Do you pay them to solve business problems with code? Or do you pay them to track down something that could be automated or that they can't see or, or, you know, another thing I get was, well, we have Splunk. I'm like, oh, okay, that's great. I mean, you can just sit there. I'm like, how, how is that helping you though? Like, I mean, where's that live time? That's a log that comes out. It's piped out. It's there. It's already over with it's not really it's i mean i guess it could be lifetime depending on close to lifetime but it's not as as it's happening so when you see that observability and so you have those those uh those questions for it where i see more of the struggle is in that hybrid environment right where they're still, they're partial legacy. What I mean, legacy, I mean like they have VMs running you know, servers with code on it and blah, 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 blah. And then they have a, a cluster here and they're talking in between it. That's where I see a lot of the pain points with, you know, with previous customers that I've got to talk to. It's like, they don't understand how to track it from one to another. So they could be doing observability amazingly in the data the traditional data center with VMs but on the flip side inside the cluster there's absolutely nothing and they just kind of feel that that same tool is going to work and it really doesn't depending on the tool and so when you see some of that you're you're trying to have those those conversations where you have to be able to you know trace it all the way through from from top to bottom and if you have no way of putting a tracer through that system then you're really you're going to be you know running down different rabbit holes and if you're in an outage it's, it's customer impact um that's uh one of the things and we talked about this before we went on air. you know there's customers that leverage tools you know um like uh, what is it uh, datadog or splunk i've mentioned but dynatrace is one of those great crossover ones and one of the things that I've seen with a lot of success with customers before uh, I came to SUSE was le- how they leveraged Dynatrace in that hybrid environment, right? Where they could be, and I mean hybrid, I wanna qualify that, meaning that you're, you know, the old way of building non-cloud native applications, and then you have cloud native workloads running Kubernetes. Them leveraging those hybrid environments with Dynatrace was, was really amazing. One of the cool things about that, where I, I would see it is we used to use Dynatrace to help with that modernization effort, right? And Derek's, used, Derek's gone down this path, I'm, I'm almost sure of it, where you're taking that traditional three-tier application and you're nativeing it and you're shoving it into Kubernetes and you can't do it all at once, right? And organizations like to take peaks, mails, like, oh, let's shut this off and we're gonna move this functionality over. And we used to leverage that Dynatrace to help with that because we can monitor and observe performance before and after. Right. And a lot of times that's where, when we talked about developers, not developing right in Kubernetes, that's where we'd find problems. And that's where, that's, that's you generally the, it's like, we made the problem worse. Well, I thought Kubernetes would going to make it better. We'll just throw just throw more resources at it. And that's, that wasn't the case. You could throw as many resources at it, bad code and bad practices inside a cluster. And that was one of the things that we used to leverage that with. We also used to leverage it where we'd be able to find everything. For modernization and like that was one of the cool things like you put these agents out there and you'd run it and customers come back going like what's running on that server i don't even know yeah. and that was amazing that like those conversations are like because you just saw these dynatrace agents and all of a sudden like you would go here's everything here's the topology of everything and infrastructure would be like i don't even know what that is the dev team's I mean, like yeah we wrote that like six years ago man like you don't know what that is and but it just sat there running but it was mission critical to their applications at those stories where you can see that observability not just inside the cluster but outside um that was critical especially when you're like hey this is not working well it's not talking to this app that's living on that server we use that it's in the dev environment oh no it's a production application talking to to, and that was common that was not that was not something that a one-off i would see that a lot
2: yeah, I mean it's it's not even – it's not even like it's – it's not like just Dynatrace solves performance, which I think is what's funny about when customers mm-hmm. try and price it out of a conversation because they're like, ah, I want to fix my performance. It's so much more than that. It's catching like performance issues early and often obviously is like the primary thing. But even that people don't really talk about. People usually talk about, oh, when I have an issue in production, I want to find it fast. It's like, well – there's there's so many other nuanceful things that matter that this solves for that's hilarious. I mean, thing number one, let's just say your environment's not documented, which is exactly what you're talking about. Because it auto-discovers not only the services that are running, but how they're interconnected and what they're phoning out to, you all of a mm-hmm. sudden have the ability to go, Well, we we've had people that left our organization. We don't know what's built, what's not built, what's running, what's rotten. You've just inventoried everything. Like instantaneously inventoried everything and inventoried every connection that's being made. Then if you're using it properly, you're – like I, I've had you know customers that have done things like move a JBoss app that's configured with Infinispan and having issues into Dynatrace. And all of a sudden they go, you know, I was blaming Infinispan for its performance issues and causing issues with my application. But it had nothing to do with Infinispan, their issues. Everything had to do with how they were reading and writing to their cache. And the only way for them to see that was to see in real time how many times their cache is being written to you by their actual applications. There, there's no mm-hmm. level of, oh, I'm going to hook up a, you know, um, a Java debugger, like a, a remote debugger and see that happening. There's no level of that that's going to ever happen. If you want to see that happen, y- you literally have to go observe things while they're happening in real time. So like it's solving for so many different issues. Besides, like besides performance at production, like it, it, it's kind of mind-blowing how small of a bucket customers want to put APM into. Even calling it an mm-hmm. application performance monitor underserves what it does, right?
0: I'll, like, that, that's the tip of that. the
2: iceberg. That's the tip of the spear for what it does. Well, but they've also
0: changed the way they talk about it, too, right? Like, they're, Yeah, abso- absolutely. Do, Donna Trains does so many more things than just APM, which was, you know, Yeah, a like, yeah they call years, themselves or, observability,
2: I, but even that, like – I guess it, it applies in a general term, but then you got to get really specific about, like, technically you could find a security problem with this, not just because Dynatrace, not, you know, I'm plugging them, but reality, they can find CVEs and stuff automatically, but not just because of that, but because, like, let's say you had an application that was making an outbound connection you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Well, Dynatrace sees it, right? Like, there's just things that you, you discover about your apps that you had no idea were there in your services when you would use something like that. I do want to circle back real quick, though, and expand just slightly upon what Nick sure. was talking about with this customer. Careful. I know. What would you say <laughs> to a customer that is saying, hey, this is too expensive, or hey, we don't know if we want to implement something like this, yada, 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 when they don't have, even to the point of log monitoring, Grafana from like a metrics, Prometheus, damn mm-hmm. same, like nothing. They have nothing to observe. The only way, and they're having critical outage issues like every other week. Well, our response was, like, you need to get observability in your environment so you can solve these challenges not only right now but early and often so you don't keep having these production-level issues. And they were unwilling to make an investment in in a tool like this because they, they, I guess from their perspective, they just didn't put budget into tools for something like this. They wanted to normally do it open source, but then their DevOps teams were removing the tools you would usually use that or monitoring open source. Again, well, they,
0: they don't like paying for stuff. They like to build stuff. Right. Which is fine. But they
2: don't even bill, right? Because they remove logging, they remove metrics, they remove everything to the point- Too much overhead. Yes. To the point, oh, because that was the other thing. They didn't want to pay for the hardware to be able to support the open source monitoring technology. Thanks for
0: listening to our first episode of Kubernetes Center of Excellence. Next uh, episode will be a review of KubeCon. Rob is out there today, this week. Um, just soaking it all up, talking to lots of people, um, doing lots of content. So we'll have plenty of things to talk about then. And, um, we'll continue to evolve this into a podcast about stories and best practices, and we're really excited that you've listened. Please subscribe on all the platforms and, uh, look forward to our next episode. This episode is brought to you by Shadowsoft's Kubernetes center of excellence. Your Kubernetes team should not be frustrated and confused. With Shadowsoft's KubeCOE, you can clarify your process, align your team, and grow your skills. For more information, go to kubecoe.com.